I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Today we're going to be talking about the only thing that anybody's really talking about, Israel and Palestine. This episode is a difficult one, probably one of the most difficult that I've done so far, because the history of conflict between Israel and Palestine is difficult to talk about. There's so much history and so much pain that underscores every flare-up in this conflict. There's so much nuance to this conversation that I don't think anybody could talk about it without leaving something out. It is made more complicated because the human mind craves order and seeks a binary. We want good guys and bad guys. But when it comes to Israel and Palestine, it's not so simple. It really depends on what year you're asking. Those things are hard. But it's not hard to condemn the brutal killing of civilians. And unfortunately, that's what we're going to talk about today. We have breaking news out of Israel this morning where Hamas has launched a surprise attack within Israel's borders overnight. Israelis woke up today to find their worst nightmares had come true in the form of a massive surprise attack by Palestinian militants. As we speak, Palestinian gunmen are inside Israeli towns and cities. Code red, code red, the Israeli loudspeaker blares in Hebrew, punctuating the sporadic gunfire. They shot a baby, three months old, I think, in front of their mother. These are babies. Babies, women, families are off limits. Show some dignity, decency. We're talking about a total of, I would say, about 280 bodies and 280 casualties. I would say 80% was tortured. And you're talking children, adults, children, when you're talking a pile, two piles of 10 children each were tied to the back, burned to death. It's indescribable, and I won't describe everything that I saw. I mean, the images that we're seeing of, of children kidnapped, of, of, young, of young women who have been uh, abducted, who have blood in their pants because they've presumably been repeatedly raped. It's horrifying. Last week during a Jewish holiday, Hamas militants carried out an unprecedented surprise attack on the nation of Israel. Hamas attacked 22 different sites within Israel simultaneously. Thousands of rockets were fired into Israel from Gaza. Bulldozers breached the border fence and thousands of fighters charged into Israeli towns and cities from land, air, and sea. Militants in motorboats stormed the beaches. Some flew in from paragliders. Hamas attacked civilians with a level of brutality that the world hasn't seen since the early days of ISIS. In Israel, entire families were slaughtered, with reports of parents being shot in front of their children. 260 civilians were shot at a music festival. Young people were burned alive. Soldiers beheaded. Elderly people killed. Bodies stacked in the streets. Women were raped and murdered, children were killed, and babies were butchered. There's a lot of fake news going around online, but here's our Secretary of State responding to the graphic images that were shared with him by the Israeli Prime Minister to verify this brutality. So uh, we did see uh, photographs, videos that the uh, Israeli government shared with us. Uh, some, I think, is actually already been seen uh, in um, uh, public media. Uh, others were, were new to me, and I think new to our team. 
it's hard to find the right words. It's beyond what anyone would ever want to imagine, much less actually see and, God forbid, experience. A baby, an infant, riddled with bullets. Soldiers beheaded. Young people burned alive in their cars or in their hideaway rooms. I could go on, but it's simply depravity in the worst imaginable way. It, it almost defies comprehension. Images are worth a thousand words. These images may be worth a million. We know about Hamas's brutality towards civilians, not just from government officials and journalists, but from Hamas. They live-streamed it. They shared videos. They were proud of it. Civilian casualties were not the accidental side effect of a tragic conflict. Gunmen didn't get carried away. The brutality was the point. Hamas wanted to humiliate, terrorize, and dehumanize the people of Israel. Amnesty International, a group that has been critical of Israel and its treatment of the Palestinians, issued a report saying that they had independently verified videos that show Hamas targeting Israeli civilians, deliberately, going into crowded places and indiscriminately shooting them, going house to house and killing families. Imagine the terror for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to have a body that wishes them dead going door to door and pulling people out of their homes. It's reminiscent of the Holocaust. Top secret documents obtained by NBC News confirm that the goal of this operation was to, quote, kill as many people as possible. These documents show that Hamas specifically targeted a school, a youth center, supermarkets, dental offices, etc., civilian infrastructure. It was planned, it was purposeful, and it was unprecedented. This attack is unique because terrorist organizations typically don't have the capacity or wherewithal to mount coordinated, simultaneous assaults on three fronts against a sovereign nation. Not only that, but Hamas somehow possessed the ability to keep its preparations unknown from a country like Israel that has among the most sophisticated intelligence services in the world. That strongly suggests that it had external state support, advice, and guidance in the planning and execution of the attack. Iran, accordingly is a strong suspect behind this. And I'm sure that in the days and weeks that follow, we will learn more about the role that they played. So who is Hamas? Hamas is the de facto governing body of the Gaza Strip. Many countries, including the United States, have designated Hamas a terrorist group. But in Palestine, it's not so simple. Hamas is popular. They currently govern Gaza, but the Palestinian people elected them to govern all of Palestine. In the 2006 elections, Hamas won a majority in the Palestinian Legislative Council, meaning that the people of Palestine voted for them to govern. But international bodies, like the United States, refused to recognize their government because they declared Hamas a terrorist organization, even though they were democratically elected. And the Fatah, the other major political party in Palestine, refused to cede power, especially over the West Bank. So now political leadership in Palestine is bifurcated, with Hamas ruling over the Gaza Strip and the Fatah ruling over the West Bank. 
It's worth noting that the FATA suspended elections in the West Bank in 2021. That was based on a fear that if an election was held, Hamas would win power and the right to think that. A poll conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip showed that over half of Palestinians would vote for Hamas over the less violent Fatah, given the choice. Hamas's popularity is due in part to their commitment to the social services that they've provided since their founding. They operate schools, clinics, hospitals, food assistance, and offer financial aid to impoverished families. And those services are desperately needed because the United Nations estimates that 80% of the people living in Gaza live in poverty. But that isn't the only reason for Hamas's popularity. Over 50% of Palestinian people do support armed resistance against Israel. To many people in Palestine, Hamas is viewed as freedom fighters, pushing back against Israel. In the West, we've labeled Hamas a terrorist group. And I think that they are. But how would we have thought of other revolutionaries, like William Wallace, if they were Eastern heroes instead of Western ones? I think it's important to understand the Palestinian perspective on Hamas because if you don't, it's easy to trick yourself into thinking that Palestine should just turn over Hamas or that Israel should just eliminate Hamas from Palestine, as though it's that simple. And even if it was, Palestinians wouldn't necessarily want that. Many members of Hamas sit at their family dinner table, and people don't end up in Hamas if they feel like they have other options. The situation in Palestine is grim. It's essentially the world's largest refugee camp, and it has been for a long time. Things that we take for granted, opportunity, economic growth, these are all things that Palestine doesn't have. For many, Hamas is the only option to resist the Israeli occupation that has dominated them for decades. I encourage all of you to let that context complicate your view on this issue because it is complicated. And if your opinion is only informed by pictures that you see on social media, it's easy to come out of this on one side or the other. And when you're looking at your own opinions, if they're firmly on one side without any qualification, I encourage you to look at them again, because this is not a simple issue. But as we look at the attack that Israel has suffered and what comes next, we see a country that has been dealt a devastating blow and found itself in a morally impossible situation. And to understand just how morally impossible that situation is, I think you really need to understand the scope of the attack against them. Many media figures have equated this to Israel's 9-11. That actually misses the scale of the attack. If you adjust for the difference in our population, it would be like if Russia stormed our borders and killed 30,000 Americans wounded and brutalized many more, took 5,000 hostages, and taunted us from social media. We lost 3,000 American citizens in 9-11, and look at how we responded. Imagine if it was 30,000. That is the scale. Imagine further, 5,000 hostages, many women and children, pulled out of our cities and taken to Russia. Every second that ticks by would be a second at which violence could be inflicted on our citizens. What would you want your government to do in that situation? And I ask that genuinely. What would you want your government to do if one of those hostages was your husband, your wife, your child, your grandmother? What would you do to get them back? 
what would you ask your government to do in your name? Think, what would you ask your government to do? Not only that, but how much inaction could you accept? For me, not a lot. That blow would say I'm not safe in my country. I'm not safe in my home, and my family could be taken from me at any point. And I, I really, I don't know. If I thought that a foreign power was beating or raping my mother or my brother, what brutality I would be capable of in response. So when you look at Israel and you hear these activists talk about how Israel needs to de-escalate, would you de-escalate? It's impossible to do nothing. It would be a sign of weakness globally. And the consequences to showing weakness for Israel are different than the consequences for showing weakness if you're a country like the United States. I'm not advocating for strongman tactics, but I think that you also need to understand Israel's unique predicament. For most of the last century, Israel has been surrounded by enemies on all sides. Enemies that have launched surprise attacks like this one. Israel does not have the default to safety that we do in the United States. So projecting weakness in response to something like this, in addition to being demoralizing, politically destabilizing, it is also saying that Israel is weak and that you can hurt Israeli citizens and nothing will happen to you. Not only that, but attacks on Israel put Jewish people abroad in danger too. Anti-Semitism is a disease and it spreads like one. In the days after the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, anti-Semitism has been on horrid display at a scale that I haven't seen in my lifetime. In New York City, a pro-Palestinian rally endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America saw a thousand people chant, resistance is justified when people are occupied. Glory to the martyrs. Right to resist! Right to resist! That means nothing is unprovoked in Palestine. There was some sort of rave or desert party where they were having a great time until the resistance came in electrified hang gliders and took at least several dozen hipsters. Thank you all for being here, for raising your voices to celebrate the glorious victory of the resistance. And to honor our martyrs and for marching to show those here in the heart of the empire that they will never defeat our struggle. Protesters in Sydney, Australia chanted, Gas the Jews. That happened the day after the attack on Israel. There weren't pro Russian rallies in New York after they attacked Ukraine. In France, 20 people have been arrested over anti-Semitic hate crimes committed days after the attack. Anti-Semitic attacks in Britain have quadrupled. In Berlin, Germany, a synagogue was firebombed. So Israel is in a position where they have to react not just for the safety of their people, but for the safety of the Jewish people globally. Israel's impossible situation is further compounded by the fact that the Gaza Strip is one of the most densely populated regions on Earth. Hamas knows this. They use this. Hamas has a demonstrated record of using human shields against Israel since 2007. 
NATO defines that as firing rockets, artilleries, and mortars from or in proximity to heavily populated civilian areas, often from or near facilities that should be protected according to the Geneva Convention. Basically saying, rockets, artillery, and mortars are being fired by Hamas into Israel from schools, hospitals, mosques, homes, apartment buildings. They locate military or security-related infrastructure within or in proximity to civilian areas. They even operate their terrorist network out of tunnels that have been built underneath the city of Gaza. By building those tunnels underneath civilian infrastructure, the civilian bodies are a line of defense for Hamas. So they surround themselves with civilians like armor, knowing that for Israel to strike them back, they would have to strike through civilians. And they know how the narrative goes with Israel. They know that as Israel seeks retribution and that civilian death count climbs, the world will turn against Israel. It will delegitimize Israel. And in a sense, it should. Any country murdering civilians should be condemned internationally. But if that's what you believe, then that includes Palestine. Because even if you believe that Israel is wrong, that Israel illegally occupies Palestinian lands, and occupied people still are not justified in committing mass murder and rape. Hamas chose to attack Israel. It chose to stack the bodies of civilians in the street to kill children. That was Hamas's choice. Then Hamas chose to retreat into Gaza with Israeli hostages and hide amongst civilians, putting those civilians at risk. Hamas murdered Israeli civilians and signed the death warrant of Palestinian civilians, but we're not holding them accountable for that. We act as though they're a group without agency, which is an inherently colonialist notion. Thinking of them as savages that don't know any better, and it's just not true. Hamas is smart. Israel has one of the most advanced intelligence apparatuses in the world, not to mention the strength of its military. Yet still, Hamas, a much smaller enemy, has lured it into a trap that it cannot escape. That's a smart adversary. Israel is guilty of crimes historically, but the war that it fights right now was a war of choice, and the choice was made by Hamas. Israel has a right to defend itself, because we should not deny it any right we would extend to another nation. And I think that there is a time and a place for an informed discussion about the crimes that Israel has committed against the Palestinian people. But that time is not after an attack of this scale. This is the most Jews killed in a single day since the Holocaust. Hamas's founding document states that the destruction of Israel and the death of the Jews is an objective of the organization. How do you make peace with a group that doesn't believe you have a right to exist? How do you do that? How do we ask the Jewish people to support a two-state solution when the other party supports the final solution. This attack was designed to provoke a reaction, and it did. Israel is at war. We didn't want this war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. But though Israel didn't start this war, Israel will finish it. Once the Jewish people were stateless, once the Jewish people were defenseless, no longer, Hamas will understand that by attacking us, They've made a mistake of historic proportions. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies 
for decades to come. That's Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu speaking after Israel declared war on Hamas. This outcome seems almost inevitable. A lot of Palestinians are going to die. Why would Hamas risk that? What do they gain from it? As one of the two political parties in Palestine, not much. They risk their credibility. They risk people getting tired of them. But if the goal of your group is the destruction of Israel, the brutality was the point. Today, it's been reported that Israel managed to kill the head of Hamas's defense forces. It's just the latest in a number of dead Hamas leadership. So Hamas isn't benefiting from this attack, and Palestine definitely isn't benefiting from the attack. So who did benefit? That question brings us to the Iran of it all. Iran has everything to gain and nothing to lose. Let's back up. Iran and Israel have been enemies since 1979. The new Islamist regime viewed Israel as an illegitimate state that usurped Muslim land and drove the Palestinians from their homeland. They don't believe that Israel has a right to exist. Since 1979, Iranian leaders have expressed that sentiment with differing severity. But as with most moderates, their voices have rarely been louder than the extremists. But the facts remain that Iran fundamentally believes that Israel should not exist and thus should be destroyed. And they've committed quite a bit of time, money, and resources to making that happen. Iran and Israel have never gone to war directly, but they've been fighting indirectly in a proxy war off and on for decades similar to the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Iran provides financial aid, training, and weapons to anti-Israeli terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. In 2022 alone, Hamas claimed that Iran gave them $70 million. A State Department report released in 2020 estimates that the number is closer to $100 million every year. We don't know how involved Iran was in the planning and execution of this attack on Israel. The Wall Street Journal has reported that Iran was directly involved in the planning and execution of this attack, but the U.S. government and the governments of other nations have not yet confirmed this. To assume that the attack was wholly directed by Iran is to deny Palestinians their agency. But at the bare minimum, we can assume Hamas wanted to do it and Iran wanted it done. The Iranian government congratulated Hamas on its surprise attack against Israel, which is disgusting. I genuinely struggle to imagine the government of any country congratulating a group for an attack on civilians. But Iran continues to be an exception in the worst possible way. They're a chaos actor in the Middle East. And from their perspective, their strategy has been a triumph. And the unfortunate reality is that it's likely to continue to be successful. Iran has warned Israel that if they continue to strike at Gaza civilians, Iran will be forced to intervene militarily. But I don't think that that's likely to happen because they don't want to directly engage Israel's military. They don't have to. The Iranian strategy is to fund, fuel, train, and supply terrorist groups that hate Israel. And then those groups do the violence for them. They face Israel's response. So Iran doesn't have to. They don't just use these groups for terror. They use them as a foreign policy tool as well. Over time, more Arab nations have normalized relations with Israel, meaning that they've opened up trade, travel, negotiations, and communications. This year, the U.S. has been brokering a three-way defensive treaty between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. Saudi Arabia has tremendous power and influence in the Middle East, and if they signed a deal to normalize Israel, 
it would massively shift the power dynamic in the region and leave Iran isolated. However, since Israel began retaliating against Hamas and Palestine, the Israel-Saudi deal appears to be on ice, and many regions that had been moving towards Israel have started to retreat, which is exactly what Iran wants. They've proven that they can inflame public opinion, turn it against Israel and the West, mobilize the streets to put pressure on world leaders, and sabotage the ability of the United States and other world leaders to come together for peace. And unfortunately, there isn't much to be done about it. Even if we knew for a fact that Iran was responsible, short of all-out war, our only retaliation would be sanctions. But I don't have a lot of faith in that working because we're already sanctioning them. And we had even more sanctions against them during the Obama administration before the Iran nuclear deal. They were still able to fund terrorist groups no problem. Because terrorism is cheap. We can't sanction Iran enough to make them unable to fund it. And if we tried, gas prices would go through the roof and it would become politically untenable very quickly. And that's the genius of Iranian strategy. No one can attack them without looking like they're escalating the conflict toward world war, especially if you can't prove their direct involvement since they didn't carry these attacks out by themselves. Sanctions don't work. And they risk domestic destabilization. So Iran remains functionally untouchable, which is a problem for every reason that we've just talked about, but also because one of their proxy groups could have a big impact on what happens next. Hezbollah is a Shiite military political party and a militant group based in Lebanon. And while they may sound similar to Hamas on paper, these groups are actually really different. And Hezbollah is much more capable. Their security apparatus, political organization, and network of social services are so advanced that they're often referred to as a state within a state. They have a history of carrying out terrorist attacks, but their long-standing alliance with Iran and their recent experience in the Syrian civil war has hardened them into an increasingly effective military force with up to 100,000 fighters. Israel has been Hezbollah's primary enemy since the early 80s when Israel occupied southern Lebanon. But even after Israel withdrew from Lebanon, the group has remained dedicated to Israel's destruction. Tensions have been rising on Israel's northern border where Hezbollah and Israel have been engaged in small skirmishes since war broke out with Gaza. It's not clear if Hezbollah will enter the conflict or not. Israel still has the most sophisticated military in the Middle East, and Hezbollah would not come out on top, but they could really make it hurt along the way, thanks in part to their advanced weaponry from Iran. If Hezbollah gets involved, then this becomes a multi-front war that could swallow the Middle East and push the world towards a global conflict. President Biden has said that the U.S. will continue to support Israel. We have two warships in the area as a warning to Iran and Hezbollah to stay out of this conflict. But those ships have already intercepted two rocket attacks. But unfortunately, our rapid withdrawal from the Middle East, our disunity and dysfunction at home, these things project weakness globally and invites our enemies to act while calling our resolve into question. Last night, President Biden addressed the American people and made the case for supporting Israel. We're facing an inflection point in history. One of those moments where the decisions we make today are going to determine the future for decades to come. Now, early this morning, I returned from Israel and met with Israelis who had personally lived through horrific horror by the attack by Hamas on the 7th of October. More than 1,300 people slaughtered in Israel, including at least 32 American citizens. Scores of innocents, from infants to the elderly grandparents, 
Israelis, Americans taken hostage. As I told the families of Americans being held captive by Hamas, we're pursuing every avenue to bring their loved ones home. As president, there is no higher priority for me than the safety of Americans held hostage. The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. <clears throat> in Israel, I saw people who were strong, determined, resilient, and also angry, in shock, and in deep, deep pain. We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. He renewed calls for peace in Palestine and U.S. support for a two-state solution. The United States remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. I'm heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, including the explosion at the hospital in Gaza, which was not done by the Israelis. We mourn every innocent life lost. We can't ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. President Netanyahu and I discussed again yesterday the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best as they can. And the people of Gaza urgently need food, water, and medicine. Yesterday, in discussions with the leaders of Israel and Egypt, I secured an agreement for the first shipment of humanitarian assistance from the United Nations to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. If Hamas does not divert or steal this shipment, these shipments, we're going to provide an opening for sustained delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians. As I said in Israel, as hard as it is, we cannot give up on peace. We cannot give up on a two-state solution. Israel and Palestinians equally deserve to live in safety, dignity, and peace. You know, and here at home, we have to be honest with ourselves. In recent years, too much hate has given too much oxygen, fueling racism, the rise of anti-Semitism, Islamic phobia, right here in America. It's also intensified in the wake of recent events that led to the horrific threats and attacks that both shock us and break our hearts. On October 7th, terror attacks have triggered deep scars and terrible memories in the Jewish community. Today, Jewish families worried about being targeted in school wearing symbols of their face walking down the street, or going out about their daily lives. And I know many of you in the Muslim American community, the Arab American community, the Palestinian American community, and so many, a little boy here in the United States, equivocation denounced anti-Semitism. We can, a proud Palestinian American family. We can't stand by and stand silent when this happens. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism. We must also, without equivocation, denounce Islamophobia. And to all you hurting, those of you hurting, I want you to know I see you. You belong. And I want to say this to you. You're all America. You're all America. This is in a moment, you know, in moments like I must renounce violence and vitriol. See each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. When I was in Israel yesterday, I uh, said that. And he invited every American to remember who we are. America, America is, is a beacon, beacon to the world. Still, still. still. Tonight, there are innocent people all over the world 
who hope because of us, who believe in a better life because of us, who are desperate not to be forgotten by us and are waiting for us. But time is of the essence. I know we have our divisions at home. <clears throat> we have to get past them. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibilities as a great nation. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. In moments like these, we have to remind, we have to remember who we are. We're the United States of America. The United States of America. And there is nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. Before I end this episode, I just want to really encourage you guys to go through the show notes and look at the sources that I use to inform this episode. On something like this, I think that it's important that you don't just take my word for it or anybody's word for it, honestly. Look at the sources. Decide for yourself. I tried to be really careful in this episode to make sure that it's documented. But there's a lot that I can't fit in. There's additional context and information in those sources that will help you begin to make sense of this. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you, guys. Stay safe. I mean it.